This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots, the podcast where we talk about development, design, and the business of great products. To joining me today is Ben Arendt, product manager at Rackspace. Welcome, Ben. Cheers. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for letting me uh, come onto the show. Oh, thanks for thanks for joining me. So, Ben, you had the very uh, fortunate task of taking over a bunch of code that was written by Thoughtbot a couple of years ago. Yep, early late hop toad, early airbrake days. Yes. So, for those of you who don't know, back in 2007, Thoughtbot launched a product called Hop Toad, and it was an exception catching service and uh, for web apps, and it was one of the first if not the first one of that kind of product and we ran it for a couple of years and grew it to a certain point and then sold it to i guess the exceptional suite of products so jonathan siegel our friend bought both of those products as well as some other things and brought that together you've worked with jonathan for a while right ben yeah i've worked with him for almost five years now so we uh, met in ireland i was working in academic research looking to sort of join the startup scene. And uh, I was working a couple of incubators on the side as an interaction designer and eventually met Jonathan and worked out of a very small yellow bedroom in uh, the south part of Dublin. So it's very different. Uh, we were there for a year and then we moved to San Francisco. What were some of the, in addition to Airbrake and Exceptional and Red is to go. Were there other things that you guys sort of took on together and worked together on? Yeah, we uh, previously we worked on a startup called Right Rental, which is a product that was changing the rental market. It's no longer live, but our idea was that um, the rental market is very landlord focused, mm-hmm. and there's very little for the renter. So, for example, in the real estate, there's the MLS that keeps rent keeps house prices, but for renters, there's nothing. Something could be on Craigslist, and then the internet mm-hmm. forgets it. So it was a very interesting product, but ultimately we decided that uh, that brought us to San Francisco. We decided not to take it any further. And um, just as we were looking for something to do in the summer, um, Aaron McCabe, who was the co-founder of Contrast, which is a Dublin consultancy, was looking to move on to a new startup. And they went on to build Intercom. Right. And that's when we picked up Exceptional. So since then, it seems like a lot of your work has been sort of picking up these products, running them, growing them. Yeah, the last, uh, I guess the two years prior to getting acquired by Rackspace, we just kept picking up products. So we had it Exceptional, then we had Airbrake, then we picked up Redis to Go from the Bracey Twins. Um, and that was through mainly the add-on marketplace. We already had a good presence with two add-ons and it's a pretty small community of people mm-hmm. building developer tools. Yeah. But in each of these cases, you just picked up the product. None of the teams that were working on, and it was certainly the case for for Airbrake, it was just the product that went to you guys, none of the team, right? Yeah, just the product and a pretty short transition to yeah. You know, yeah. 30 days or so. Yeah. And then we're in charge of it, which is interesting. How has that actually been? Has it gone well? Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we've learned, I guess, lots of lessons. Um, also being acquired again by Rackspace, right. you know, that due diligence process is, you know, 60 plus days. 
I think ours was a couple of phone conversations, looking at the source code and making the deal. Hoptoad, when we kind of acquired it, was in an interesting state being on the blue box group for mm-hmm. web hosting. Certain parts of it, the way in which it's been architect, wasn't scaling and we had various problems. So we've also, we've kind of had like a standard way of sort of trying to move it to the cloud. So we moved um, Airbrake to Amazon, you know, which after you did it three or four times with different products, you kind of get used to the benefits of moving to a public cloud, which at first seems very daunting, especially moving like databases and APIs yeah. and everything else. Well, we were on the cloud with, and then we moved to Blue Box because of those scaling problems, like the, the IO problems we were having. And if you remember the time GitHub had the same problem, it's like the IO of lots of small transactions in that infrastructure. If you're not architected that way from the beginning, really not only makes things slower, but it becomes really, really expensive. Yeah. And so the fastest way we had to get things in line was to move to a private hosted solution. Um, well, so what are some of the ways that as you moved it back to the cloud that you changed it? Um, one thing we did was we migrated off the Mongo database. Mm-hmm. I think it used to be a capped Mongo DB. Um, I can't remember, there was someone who was a next thought botter and he gives a talk on like an anti-pattern in Rails. Um, and one of it was, was his like capped data collection in Mongo. Yep. Yep. So data was sort of disappearing. We started using like the RDS product from Amazon and we'd store all of the notices in S3. So S3 became like a flat file store for us. Mm-hmm. And we sort of do still do that uh, to this day. And then we're looking at, um, you know, we have a similar like IO problem. Recently we moved to the hybrid solution. So we have like dedicated F5 load balancers because network, you know, in the cloud does become the biggest issue. But the nice thing is you have the ability to scale up all the web heads, mm-hmm. but also have dedicated firewalls or if you need to do anti-DDoS prevention, um, which we sometimes get because we almost have a willful denial of service as well. Right. Yeah, I always used to say that running Hoptoad or Airbrake was like being under a constant DOS attack. Uh, that that's basically what the product is and you know like i like the idea that it's willful like (laughs) this is what our product is and especially if there's like an outage on aws or heroku or something you'll get a significant number of of the applications running on heroku are sending you errors and a lot of them and that can be pretty tough to handle yeah another thing we did pretty early on was we replaced the api with go Mm -hmm. so that I think had like a 50 to 80% in, you know, performance increase. We had a, it was pretty bumpy. It was before version one and it happened to be that we knew Blake, Ms. Rainey, who he was one of the first authors of Redis to go first engineer at Heroku. And because we knew those guys, we thought it was a good bet and it actually worked out really well for us. That's great. So before one you rewrote the error catching API yeah. in Go. Yeah. At this point it was just three of us still me, mm-hmm. Jonathan and Stuart. And I think I was in Berlin meeting some customers and uh, the guys were in Tahoe hacking and we had like another downtime because the API was kind of crashing. So they'd kind of hacked it together experimentally, got it up and we've sort of not looked back from Golang since then. It's interesting. Like I remember one of the big changes we made, which was seemed crazy at the time, but when you're in this mode of like scaling, you have to sort of do what you have to do, you know, and and make the best choices at each step of the way that you can make. And I think I'm not surprised that you guys eventually rewrote in another language. And so to give you an idea of some of the weird trade-offs we made, which 
like we went from a JSON API to an XML API at one point for receiving the things. And, and the whole thing there was we can validate the requests against a schema to know whether they're valid before we even have to spend the resources to scan them because scanning, we would sometimes get huge payloads. And if it was invalid and it wasn't going to be processed anyway, we didn't want to have to do that. So we could have streaming parsing or we can validate mm-hmm. against the schema. And Jason at the time didn't have anything like that. And so we started exploring that and we sh- showed huge performance increases in, in that. So we went in that direction. Is it still taking the XML? Yeah, we still have an XML endpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and we now have a version three, which is a JSON API. Mm-hmm. I mean, one interesting thing we've seen similar to our application has become less Rails, more JavaScript, Go, and a bit of Rails for admin stuff. We see our customers having the same solutions to their applications. Mm-hmm. Like maybe not necessarily microservices, but people are building smaller apps in specific programming languages. And they sort of come to us for specific demands for exception tracking requests. So mm-hmm. Python, you know, you can accept variables in backtrace and line number. You can also send variables in. So it's been interesting to take the core kind of API, sort of expand upon it and include all the other features, especially with um, iOS decomplication and Android have their own problems you know, or challenges with binaries. So not only were you taking over these products from people and running them on a very short time frame, but you were doing multiple ones. Was it difficult to be in a position where you're like a team of three people having just taken over a product, actually having just taken over multiple products, then having to work and run them? Was it a lot of context switching? Um, so my job at that point was kind of everything that wasn't really hardcore programming. Mm-hmm. So I did sales support, some front end work, documentation, mm-hmm. the news that ever like the bugs, everything. And, um, I think a lot of that is very standardized across all the products. So you can easily write a blog post for exception tracking, you know, Redis, uptime monitoring, and the same with support to so sort of improve your support process and at one point we set up an office in Vegas and hired like three support people, two salespeople, and we had them working across the products. And that was very easy to train for. Mm-hmm. Did you train them? <laughs> was yeah. it you who trained them? Yeah, I trained them. How t- big did the team grow before you ended up selling sort of everything to Rackspace? Uh, we, at that point, we were about 12 people. And did all of those people go to Rackspace too? A majority of them went. Some of them were contractors, so um, mm-hmm. they didn't want to stay on, but most of them continued. So now that you're at Rackspace, and Rackspace took over everything, right, that you that you guys had? Yeah. What is your day-to-day like? What is your, your new role like now? So it's interesting. There's no real great, like, playbook. You kind of think you get acquired by a large company, and it's, you know, there's, like, 15 steps to the integration platform. It can always be a bit messier. Um, thing that was very clean was the transfer of Redis to Go. Uh, that has now found a home within the data stores practice area. Mm-hmm. So um, that was another acquisition that was just before us, which was Object Rocket. And we have a practice area now that's just looking at Hadoop, Redis, Mongo, and MySQL to provide specific solutions for people. Oh, cool. So now the only thing you work on is Airbrake? And you're the product manager of that. How is yeah. it? How's it going in general? 
Things are going well. We've got a new UI coming out. We're really excited. It's just the Angular app, which I guess has had its own problems in the community. And uh, about uh, two years ago, we moved to Backbone Marionette yep. in our Rails app. And that has had problems testing it. And it was pretty bumpy the first couple of weeks we rolled it out. But the Angular app is blazing fast. It just talks directly to our lots of Golang APIs. And um, we have a full text search via Postgres. You know, we did explore to end up large Elasticsearch clusters, but we're trying to see how far we can push Postgres for our search. So really excited for some of the filtering, search, and um, the next step will be doing graphing of exceptions. Search was one of those things <laughs> that has been so commonly requested. When we were managing the product, it was one of the most common feature requests. I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, to be honest, one of the reasons why we decided to sell Airbrake and, and, and felt that we were no longer the best team to do it is because we saw how much we wanted to do to the product. And every week we'd, we'd, we'd come in and we'd have our iteration planning meeting and we'd say, okay, we spent all last week just scaling and dealing with things and putting out fires. But now this week, everything's all set. <laughs> We're going to do these three new features. It's going to be great. We'd leave the meeting all jazzed and ready to go. And then we'd spend all week putting out fires and never get to implementing those things. It sounds like You've had a little bit of that. Hopefully, it's been easier for you. Yeah, the last year or two years, we sort of very much standardized the platform and the stack and mm -hmm. made it easier for us to manage and test. You know, adding features is a very interesting thing. I think, um, you know, Des Trainer at Intercom has a great blog on how they add features and, you know, what features are actually being actively used. Um, we did notice that the core feature of our product is being available and responsive. You know, sending email notifications is the number one. Right. The next one we looked at was more integration with other product management and having more of a concept of a user within the tool. Mm -hmm. I think in the early days, the idea was that um, it was just the deduping and the list view, but otherwise everything else is separate to the tool. Right. Um, so it's been interesting to see the developer tool Area develop, um, still Jira is very strong for us. Pivotal Tracker, I think we have like ten different integrations with different uh, ticketing tools. Mm -hmm. And workflow of exceptions is a very interesting space conceptually, especially with test-driven design. You know, uh, we did have a button at one point that like helped make tests cases right. for exceptions, and um, but it never really worked 100% for everyone. So we've tried feature flagging features like that, which we made it a Git blame feature which was controversial, uh, but ultimately for that, at the scale that we're providing it, GitHub really needs to provide an API for us. It was too intense. Yeah. So how, as you approach things now in developing the product within Rackspace, are you held to certain metrics and targets? And what is your sort of interface with the rest of the organization? So um, we're based within the San Francisco office, which is a collection of acquisitions. Uh, we're closely monitored with the cloud monitoring team. So all about like application monitoring. Rackspace, six months ago, we sort of rebranded as the managed cloud company. Mm -hmm. And what that means to people who aren't like aware with our marketing is that many people around the world, they want to either deploy in applications, but they don't want to do everything themselves at Amazon. So we have a, a DevOps tier, a managed infrastructure, and they can like log into boxes, set up your monitoring, help set up your deployment scripts, 
everything that I guess non-valley businesses want to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's very easy to remember here in like San Francisco that everyone wants to build their own deployment structure or do whatever with Amazon. But there's plenty of large law firms or miscellaneous manufacturers, which is the majority of the business that need someone to help them. And uh, Rackspace is always there to pick up the phone and they can help you. So the obvious question at this point, when you took over Airbreak, you moved it to Amazon services. <laughs> is it on uh, Rackspace now? It is, yeah. Yeah. So how quickly did you have to move it? Uh, we didn't have a time frame um, for moving it. We moved it to the cloud initially. We're looking between, mm-hmm. that was the same time as the launch of Hybrid. Mm-hmm. So I think Hybrid's been a great benefit to us. Um, I actually, I'm not super familiar with what that is. I I have a sense of what it is, but can you talk more about that? Yeah, so you can have a collection of both um, dedicated servers, dedicated load balancers, and then you have um, a service net to the cloud. So mm-hmm. you can fire up as many servers. And there's a service called Rack Connect that helps connect your dedicated machines to the cloud. So you, you're now using hybrid yeah. with Airbrake? So where are those different pieces of Airbrake deployed in terms of the hybrid infrastructure? At the moment, we're in the IAD, so that would be Virginia and Chicago data center. And is there a part that's on actual boxes and the and other that's on scalable cloud infrastructure? For a period of last year, we had some of our database on some Dell R720s, but those are now on like high performance cloud boxes. And we're really excited about the OnMetal product, which is a new product that came out about six months ago as well, which is based on Open Compute, and you get the whole box. So Open Compute is a project that came out of Facebook to build like commodity servers, mm-hmm. and um, you get access to the whole box. So you don't have to worry about the, the hypervisors, people on your box, and you can containerize and split it up however you like. Oh, okay, cool. And so... You guys are obviously experienced in taking over applications and moving them to cloud infrastructure, moving them in between cloud infrastructures. But what was that transition like? How long did it take? I think the hardest thing for uh, or the way in which we did it normally is we set up like Nginx and proxy traffic. So we would recreate the environment in another data center, send the traffic across, check that everything is sort of up to date. Mm -hmm. Because we only store data for a year, it's not a big deal to sort of switch over. Even mm-hmm. if we run it for like six months, um, we can transfer the rest of the data. So we built a, r- a range of importers that imported um, S3 uh, into cloud files. And uh, that was interesting. We had the, sometimes it's interesting to be inside of your cloud provider. So you can talk directly to the cloud files team, which is Swift. And um, they didn't like us for a certain amount of time because we were <laughs> outperforming their own import tools. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you're about to launch a new UI and that, that UI is angular, talks directly to the go APIs. Does that mean that when you launch that you're completely off of Ruby and rails? Yeah, correct. So at the moment it's sort of a semi hybrid. We're feature flagging it, um, for some users like create projects is still rails based, the mm-hmm. billing, adding team members, but the list view and resolving and commenting that all talks uh, that's angular and go that's a big step that is a big step yeah it's the project has actually been going on much longer than we first expected mm-hmm. um but it's, it's very fast it's well tested and i 
you know, if you asked me a year ago if it was the right decision to move to Angular, you know, it was the new hotness. So it's very interesting now to see React and, you know, also Ember kind of like went in a bit of a lull and then it sort of come back up. Right. Um, especially with my Ruby friends. Yeah. So what do you think that you're go you guys are going to do? You're obviously on <laughs> Angular now, right? And are you thinking about what the transition to Angular 2.0 is going to be like or what you guys yeah. are going to do? It's, I guess, as uh, my friends and yet kind of said, you know, the only thing you can plan for is change. That's the only constant. <laughs> so you guys are just, you, you're going to just continue to roll with Angular and, and eventually upgrade and somehow? Yeah, I think we will probably just wait and see what happens. See, you know, there's certain things we want to do on our list view, but there's other parts of our application we want to give a lot more love to. Mm-hmm of users, some of our integrations. We would like to provide more intelligence and do more data analytics with the amount of data we have for exceptions. The ideas that we have is like trying to provide gem owners with the amount of exceptions that they have, mm-hmm. how many of those error messages across all of our customers. Yeah, and for those who don't know, you know, Angular basically announced that they're going to have a non-backwards compatible 2.0. They're going to change a lot of stuff. There's not going to be an upgrade path between the two. That's very straightforward, if at all. Um, it's pretty vague right now, right? But in terms of how that might play out. But I personally think you're thinking about it the right way. Like you're focused on building your product and building something great that people want to use. And, you know, we see this in our open source too. It's like, the version of Angular that you're on right now works great for you guys. It allows you to build the product that you want to build. And just because, you know, at some point in the future, you're not going to be running on the latest version, that's not the end of the world. And, you know, there's a certain sort of constant push forward and forward progress. Like when people see that they're not running the latest version of a gem, they get really antsy about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And... We see this in our open source work where we'll make drastic changes for a big, you know, like a 3.0 versus a 2.0. And we say, you know, 3.0 is very different. It's either a hard or difficult upgrade path, but you can continue to use 2.0. It's, it's, there's no issue at all. I think this comes up most often when we're dropping support for a, for a Rails version. So like version 2.0 of shoulda, I'm making up the numbers here, works with Rails 3, but version 3.0 of shoulda only works with Rails 4. People get really antsy about that and say, well, I want to be on this other, this newest version. And there is an upgrade path there. It's very difficult. And that requires that you change your app, that you upgrade, that you make those big leaps that we're having to make along with the frameworks that we use. And I think it's important every once in a while to take a step back and say, we're fine. It's not the end of the world. We're, we're doing great with the, pro- the, the version where we're on and we're focused on building a great product. I think that that's really a very pragmatic way to think about it. Yeah, it's been interesting to get in the guys training. We're generally like full stack devs mm-hmm. on our team and more of the senior guys. They've seen different changes and what it means to be a full stack developer. <laughs> and I think most embrace it that... You know, this is just the future of single page JavaScript apps is the future. And you can take the learnings from Angular or Ember or... Or even Backbone and Marionette, Backbone. right? Yeah. yeah. And discontinue it forwards. I think that when you have a... If you focus on building a successful product, a lot of that stuff works itself out. It may not be easy, but it works itself out. I think with, with Airbrake in particular, it goes well beyond just 
Angular and any upcoming challenges you might have. As we outlined already today, when we were running Airbrake, it was built in Ruby on Rails. We went through enormous amount of changes, moving from S3 storage to MongoDB to MySQL to continue to scale up a successful product. And then when you guys took it over, you needed to make a bunch more changes to the data store and eventually rewrote things in Go and to continue to scale up and build a successful product. And really the Angular thing is not very much different than any one of those past things where you have a challenge, you need to overcome it. But if you didn't have a successful product, you wouldn't need to do that anyway. So that's the silver mm-hmm. lining. Yes. Uh, in the recent years, there's been many more competitors in the market space too. Um, yeah. How has inter- that been? Um, from a business perspective and from product, I think it's uh, it's almost like the pet project for exception trackers. Yeah. And I think we've seen like five or six come and go already. Um, it's a very easy thing to either copy our API, take our gem, and then you can just send it to your own Mongo, like very small Mongo database. You don't have to worry about any of the scaling. Right. We've kind of already proved the market. Right. Th- there was two firsts that we saw, and that was the Airbrake gem at the time it was Hoptoed. Airbrake gem was open source. So I think the first thing that happened was someone took that, renamed it, renamed all, all the references to Hoptoed in it. And started it talking to a separate service, which was API yeah. compatible. And, you know, <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic because at the end of the day, we made it open source. And there was nothing technically wrong with that. But it's it's a really interesting dynamic. You know, we continue to sort of stand by that. So we, we build Hound now, which is a, a style checking app for your code and that whole product is open source so we've made the decision we're going to run hosted version of it people pay monthly fee it runs just like a normal service you might pay for but at the same time it's all open source on github and we do that to provide you know people are giving us access to their code to their github so we want sort of the security and 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 sort of peace of mind in knowing that it's all there you can audit it you can look at it it's fine but we also did it because we believe in open source. Um, we also did it from our experience in Airbrake because we sort of felt like people are going to do this anyway. If if we're a market leader, if people are going to start copying our API, if they're going to start copying the idea, we think we can build a successful product and still make the entire thing open source and sort of maybe do an end run around that. To like, If someone really wants to spin up an instance of this on their own, and spend <laughs> thousands of dollars a month in developer time uh, building or, or supporting a custom-built system, um, they can do that now. They yeah. don't need to pay us their monthly fee. And uh, in the open-source community, there's a product called Aerobit that's mm-hmm. a self-confessed clone of Airbrake right. that you can run yourself. And we see lots of people, they're like, oh, it's like Arabic crashed. Eventually the dev sets it up because, you know, people would like to own their stuff, like in the infrastructure. And then eventually their manager's like, why am I paying you this much money, like an hour when you can just pay $39 a month and it's already works robust. They can pay yearly or it's just a much simpler solution. So we can give people their time to focus on building their business. Yeah. And I think that that's... It's a weird dynamic. I, I I think that I've done it in the past too. It's like, no, I want to own this. I want to do it. And and there there does come a point in business where you need to realize the true cost benefit analysis of 
building or running something on your own versus paying for a SaaS hosted model? Yeah, we, we use a lot of SaaS too as a SaaS company. Um, I think we might be spending maybe a thousand bucks a month on other SaaS products mm-hmm. for the same reason. And um, some things are sort of interesting, you know, that have kind of like sprung up recently, like uh, segment.io, which is sort of a... Yeah, we use the heck out of that. Yeah. And I'm sort of apprehensive of giving like a third party all the information. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely say it's a very powerful tool. And it's sort of amazing all the tools that you can get out of the box now starting a business. Yeah, what are the what are the big ones that you use that you think are really great? I mean, we love Intercom. Yeah, we do too. Yeah, it's a great product for. We actually don't use it fully for support yet. We still use Tender because mm-hmm. it has um, a good knowledge base integration. Right. You know, there are a couple of guys up in Portland, very like developer type focus. What's Markdown, which is nice. I think we would like to move to something like Slate, which is an open source documentation tool from Tripit. Mm-hmm. For our docs, making our API docs cleaner. Another f- interesting product we use is Temper.io, which you get a little snippet that you can put into support tickets or in your app. Oh, and yeah. It's like a happy, a sad, or a smiley face. Yep. And so one thing we do when we um, close support tickets, we ask, like, how was your experience with the support person? So, like, Ben. And uh, it's really interesting to, to put the human aspect in it and to rate them. Because some people give, like, the sad face, and they're like... It's not Ben's fault, but <laughs> I really didn't like it. And we do the same with our newsletter too. And people kind of, they give us a sad face for the newsletter, but oh. they give us the feedback and we, you know, help improve our newsletter. Uh, that's that's a good idea, putting it in the newsletter. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, right. But like, it's like, how was this newsletter? And then we have that and then we have the unsubscribe. So we hope that we can get like good feedback, improve it, um, or positive feedback, mm-hmm. which is great. We're still looking for a really good CRM. You know, we use Salesforce as the standard and we use that at Rackspace. We've, but we've tried Base, Harvest, um, Nutshell, a whole range. And I think what I've we've tried about- all of these too. <laughs> uh, we're actually using HubSpot now okay. um, and trying that out, both because for the CRM and the traditional HubSpot features of landing pages and funneling people in and newsletter and that kind of thing too. We're experimenting a lot with that. I can't necessarily recommend it, but what, what I've learned about CRMs is really the CRM is just like a tool, yeah, and it's getting your your process for the sales cycle, which was a very interesting experience helping set up an office in Vegas for sales. Like we put phone number, we collect phone numbers when people sign up now, and you know we've tried calling people at like one minute, five minute, and ten minutes, and. It it freaks them out for a developer tool. People are not used to getting called up immediately. Are you still doing that? We're not doing that at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, but it's something that we would like to do. Was it effective? It was very, it was effective. Uh, if you do it within the first like five minutes after mm-hmm. they've just signed up. Mm-hmm. And you see Salesforce do it um, on a huge scale, but they sort of don't stop calling you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They have a very aggressive sales cycle. Um, but we're very, you know, happy meeting our customers. In total, we must have been to 20 or 30 different cities and uh, we actually use Intercom for this. So each time right. we're either on holiday, we look at everyone in like London or New York. We're like, we're in town. We'll meet, what's the good local bar? And we'll buy like drinks on us. And that's a great way for us to get feedback and um, just meet the general community of developers. Yeah. So we use Intercom for that as well. It works really well. And 
on Upcase, we use it for support too because we don't need the knowledge base. And so we've we've found that that's working really well as long as it works for your workflow and for your product. And yeah, CRM's like a tool and we've tried all of those too. We'll, we'll link all these things in case you um, are interested in the show notes. This is episode 135. It'll be at giantrobots.fm slash 135. Uh, all the show notes and links uh, to these various tools we've talked about. Anything else, Ben, that is a really valuable tool? I think that's it for really valuable tools. Um, I would say, you know, other people running a SaaS company, you might see very large companies or brands or products. Don't be intimidated by them uh, or them signing up. I think we, about three years ago, we went to New York and we went to Kickstarter's office and they're no longer a customer, but it was very interesting to see their period of growth, them using the tool. The same with the New York Times, and they're still a customer. It's um, People are very willing to spend time with you, give you feedback, and it can be more invaluable than you know just going through your analytics tools. That's great. There's no, there's no substitute for talking to customers is basically what you're saying. Yeah. Hey, it's funny when you talk to your customers, you might build a better product. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you stopping by and talking to me. Cool. Thank you. This is my pleasure. And if someone wants to get in touch with you or learn more or follow you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I'm at Ben Arendt on Twitter, and I'm just Ben at Airbreak.io. And I'm C. Pytel on Twitter. This was the Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots podcast, episode 135. Those show notes, again, are at giantrobots.fm slash 135. This episode was produced and recorded by Tom Obarski, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.